Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with some of the most interesting voices in the sport. Ask and ye shall receive. Billy from Perth, Australia, asked us when we'd get the voice of the ATP tour, Robbie Koenig, onto the show. Well, Billy, you're in luck. We were at the ATP Finals in London, and Robbie was calling a match in the booth upstairs, so we stopped in for a five-set chat. Robbie probably watches more men's tennis than anyone in the world, so we asked him what he thought of the year, what he thinks Kevin Anderson's key to success has been this year, who he sees making a significant play in 2019, and how the loss to Delpo at Indian Wells started a downturn for Roger Federer. When Robbie was a player, he beat Rafter, he beat Henman, and he beat Kafelnikov. And now he's talking to us. We're sitting in the Catbird seat of all seats. We're on the first level of the O2 Arena in the international booth with Robbie Koenig. He is the broadcaster for the world which is an unbelievable thing. He literally goes out to, how many countries does this go to, Robbie? Oh, I think we're over 100 now. I don't know what the exact number is, Craig. So the best way of explaining it, I explain it, is that everybody else around the world buys their television rights from the host broadcaster, which is ATP Media. And that's who I work for. And Robbie is a former player. Um, He's a South African. That's why he's got that silky voice. And... Sometimes when networks like Tennis Channel may not have a broadcast team doing a certain event, it's Robbie who you hear, and that's the voice. He never, and he never really ever says his name. Really, yeah. You never say this is Robbie Koenig. I'm here. You never do that, really. Yeah. Okay. I'll do it more than if you're telling me that. That's a feedback. Well, I'm just saying you're like a mystery voice. I, okay. I feel like you're the mystery voice of tennis at times. No. Okay. But maybe after this show, you'll be exactly. Enough. Thanks to you, man. Ever run out of gas? Literally, try Urgently. It's roadside assistance reinvented, and they are sponsoring this episode. I drive an old car that runs like a dream 95% of the time, but for those other times when it doesn't start or it breaks down and I need a tow, Urgently is the answer, Urgently. Just go to GetUrgently.com and request help with a few taps, and in no time, a truck will be to you. And the best part is you can watch the truck on a map on the screen. It's like basically Uber for roadside assistance. Give it a try, urgently. And you can find them at GetUrgently.com. That's G-E-T-U-R-G-E-N-T-L-Y.com. Urgently. So in an effort to keep things moving and cover a wide variety of topics, we use a five-set format. So, Robbie, moving into our first set, we call it our off-the-court report. Um, how many tournaments have you broadcast this year? I mean, where, where have you been? Where do you go? So I'll do about um, 25 weeks um, throughout the course of the season. In fact, I'll tell you exactly what my, my schedule is this year. I start in Auckland the week before the Australian Open, and then I'll do two weeks in Oz. Then I will do Indian Wells. I'll do two more weeks there, pretty much. We cover all of Indian Wells. I like to take Miami off at the moment. The last two years, Craig, it always used to be part of my schedule. But it's over Easter time, and with my kids getting a little older now, 
I like to try and spend some of the holidays with them where possible. But you're gonna come back for the new. You're gonna you're gonna want to see the newer the new yes. setup. Yes, I haven't been there, so obviously I'll be keen to check that out next year. And then uh, I'll do Monte Carlo, uh, Rome, and Madrid. So I'll do all the clay court events with the Masters one thousands. I'll skip the French. Um, never been one of my favorite tournaments. So again, nice time to be at Skips home. Skips the French. Yes. Clay was never my favorite surface, man. Man, I didn't Bad even memories, know that. Craig. I didn't even know that was allowed. That you <laughs> even have a week. You you can miss a uh, slam, but I guess that's an ITF event, and there's not a there's not a world feed. There is. Um, oh, right, 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 I'm just I'm not part of it. But also, I think um, with Federer skipping the clay court season, I thought I might as well follow in someone's footsteps. Right, that guy's pretty good. So that's lim- that's lim- a pretty good way to do it. <laughs> so you leave Rome and you go home. Yes, correct. And then you come back from South Africa. Oh, no, sorry. Where were you? South, South Africa. Africa. Yeah. And then I'll do some of the grass court tournaments this year. I did Queens and Eastbourne going into Wimbledon. So that was a four-week stretch. And then I go home for a couple of weeks and then uh, straight into the U.S., which is always my favorite part of the season. Um, and I think it's because I used to play well on hard courts. So the, the memories are good. The U.S. Open was my su- most successful major. So I'll do... Um, Canada and Cincinnati and then take a week off go and play golf with a buddy of mine I love golf and then I'll come to do the two weeks of the US Open where do you go play golf? We go to a, a lovely seaside town actually called Seaside in Florida which is in that Florida panhandle so you go to Florida right in the middle of the summer yeah. 105 degrees yeah but it's actually not too bad there it's a spectacular little spot I didn't realize you guys had beaches with that white, white sand. Oh, you're on the panhandle. That's amazing sand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. I've, yeah. I know what you're talking about. So you play golf there? For five days, five, six days uh, with a good buddy of mine. He's actually got a place down there. So nice time to unwind before the U.S. Open. And I'll, hit, uh, I'll head to New York on the weekend, get there normally Saturday or Sunday, do a bit of prep, and then boom, we're straight into uh, the final major of the year. So you got six weeks off after the Masters, after the week, I call it the Masters, the finals. Yes. And now what will you do from, from, from now till? I'm pretty much off until Auckland, which is the, the second week in January. So what will you do? Do you, do you go home? Absolutely. Go home, family time, hang out with the kids. It's our summer holiday. Don't forget we're the opposite to you guys. So our summer's coming up now. Um, no work. No work. When I'm home, it's never any work. All my work gets done on the road. This is your only job. You my don't, only you're not job. a coach. You don't have an no. academy. I'm a coach to my son. He's 15 years old. So he, uh, he can, enjoys oh, his can tennis. Can he play? He can play well. Um, is he world class? Uh, no, not yet. I'm working on it. But uh, he hits the ball really nicely. Just got to toughen up a little bit on the physical side of things. But he enjoys it. So... That's a that's fun for me to. He's at a level now, Craig, where I have to play full out now, so I get a good workout when we play, and we still try and manage that full, full out. Full out, he said. He's got to play hard to play his kid. Yes. So the kid seems like he's a good player, man. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. He just needs to beef up a little bit. Unfortunately, he's got dad's genes, so I might have to put him on a human growth hormone for a couple of years just to beef him up, Craigie. Moving into our second set. This is our On the Court Report. Mm-hmm. Now listen, nobody sees more tennis than Robbie Koenig. I don't care. <laughs> There's not, there, there can't be somebody that sees more tennis than you. Well, I think from a broadcasting perspective, um, 
we probably do about as many matches as anybody because don't forget we're there first ball to last ball when you're doing the international feed. Every single match played. On the televised courts. On the televised courts, we're you're across there. Those. We're across those. Now, of course, we can't cover courts simultaneously, but as soon as a center court match finishes, we're popping to a grandstand, we're popping to a court one if it's a televised court. I think in uh, a tournament like Indian Wells, for example, we've got four televised courts. So we're across that all the time. So, so what have your impressions been of men's tennis this year? I think it's been a fascinating year. It started off with Roger being white hot again, winning in Australia. We thought, wow, this is unbelievable. How much longer can this guy keep it going? By the way, um, 37 years old, guys winning Grand Slams. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's completely ridiculous. But I think the major spoke in his wheel came in Indian Wells because he goes through the tournament there. He plays okay. And he's up against Del Potro in the final. He has three match points to shut the gates and win the title. And don't forget, Craig, if he wins that tournament, he holds the number one ranking right through the clay court season without playing, but he loses. Any By the way, those guys mm -hmm. played hard. That was a real match, mm -hmm. man. That was a firefight. Seven, six in the third, Woo! right? I mean, that was incredible, but they were, they were kind of bickering at each other. There That's was right. some static on the court. Quite often, you know, one of my complaints is that these guys all get along too well but uh mm. certainly in that final those guys were that was a you're right i mean that was an unbelievable moment and roger lost that match and you know what it's like as a tennis player when you've had match points you have three of them there and you lose it hurts twice as much and and knowing that all that other stuff would have come with that win of course he goes to miami the next week and loses to kokonakis in his opening match, he I think 7-6 seven, six, seven, six in the third again. So that kind of, for me, that, that was, a, I don't even want to say chipped away at Roger, but it took a big chunk out of him, I think. Yeah, and you don't get better when you get older, man. You know, you, at some point, it becomes harder to win and play day after day. You want those results to go your way. You, you don't want them to go against you. If you want to keep on winning Masters 1000s, winning majors, you need those kind of results to go. And then... You know, he's got those losses to Kokonakis. He loses to Chorich on a grass court. I didn't see that coming in Halle. Um, and, of course, you know, a couple of weeks later, he loses to my fellow countrymen after having match points at Wimbledon. Well, I mean, Kevin Anderson is also one of the great stories of 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, South African, but he's fighting. I think he went to Illinois, right? That's right. He, did he graduate? From no, I don't think so. I think okay. he did three years there. But... Um, you must know him well. Yes, I know Kev well. Um, he is just the most diligent guy. You talk about bounce back ability. He's got some serious bounce back ability. His his path to the top has not been a linear one. It's been hard fought. And also, you know, coming from South Africa, you're not getting any funding. You don't have this big federation money behind you. Um, he's invested well in himself. And, and I think, especially the last... Two years, I've been mightily impressed by, by what he's achieved. I think he lost, what was it, 10 quarterfinals at Masters 1000s before finally getting over the hurdle in Madrid this year when he made it to the semis. And by the way, you said diligent. Um, mm. I was told yesterday that he's meticulous as well, mm -hmm. that he's, he's like he's a meticulous preparer. Yeah. His rackets, his diet, he's really put his head down 
for a long time now to yep. to to be winning those kind of matches. You're just putting yourself in the best possible position. I saw a lovely piece from Andre Agassi just the other day on social media, and he was asked about confidence. How do you get confidence? He said, you don't get confidence um, necessarily from just winning matches, and especially if you're not winning matches. The only way you can start to build up your confidence is by doing everything you possibly can off the court so that when you step onto it, you can play with a free mind. There's no doubts. And he says, that will take care of the winning. And I thought it was a nice way of putting it. And that, for me, it just reminded me so much of what Kevin's about. He's put himself in the right position so often that sooner or later, something good's going to happen. Um, Borna Chorich, uh, Alex Dimanauer, um uh, Karen Kachinoff, um, are there any other sleepers out there that maybe we don't know about that you've seen that you uh, really, really like that have a, you know, maybe have a quality kind of ball striking that we that we should look out for in 2019 or, or, or what you saw this year that you liked? Yeah, no, um, I think the youngsters are coming. Um, I like Stefanos Tsitsipas, I love his attitude. Of course. Uh, of course, he played Dimino in the finals of the next-gen finals. Uh, and I tell you, Dimonor surprised me. You know, Craig, when I saw him play at the beginning of the year, I thought he was a little lightweight. I thought the good results that we saw in Brisbane and Sydney was only because he was playing in his own backyard. I thought he's getting an extra 20% out of his game because he's an Oz. But hey, it's going to be a different story when you travel, Alex. Let's see how the results hold up then. And man, it guy's been a revelation. And, uh, you know, I said it's... It's like Leighton Hewitt. Yeah. Uh, like almost exactly. Yeah. His serve is not as good as Hewitt's, you know. Oh, is that right? Hewitt's serve was sneaky good. I think it's the one area where he's going to need to improve, and that's Dimonor I'm talking about. And also when Hewitt was playing, the the courts were a little slicker, and that that flattish serve of his was so effective. It was Mm. so sneaky good. And if Alex can improve in that department, I think, you know, that's when he can really entrench himself as, you know, a top 10 player. But the strides he's made have been incredible, man. And, and what are your sources telling you about, um, I've heard that Sissipas and Zverev have some static, that they don't, they're not, they're not the best of friends. Don't have to be. But I'm saying, I don't know, yeah. I, listen, I prefer it, man. Yeah. I, I like to, I, did, have you heard that those guys are a little bit oil and water? Um, no, I haven't heard that. Mm. But I tell you what uh, I did notice was that when Dimonor and Sissipas uh, shook hands after that final, um, it was no hugging from Dimonor either. He was, he was pissed off that he'd lost. And um, he took it personally. And he wasn't going to show the old bromance that you see a lot of these days. And I think that little bit standoffish thing was good. You talk about wanting more friction on the court. I don't mind that. Back to the days of, of Pete and Andre, when it wasn't always hugging you know, bring it in and hug it in and all that sort of stuff. And and I like that edge, certainly that I saw from Dimonor. And uh, the fact that he showed it to Sitsipas perhaps touches on what you're talking about. And what about, what about uh, Shapo- Shapovalov? I mean, Shapovalov, Shapovalov, he did not really come correct the way he did last season. I and mean, this wasn't... You know, he he kept his ranking, I think, close, but yep. he didn't break through the way I think everyone was kind of hoping. Yeah, or expecting maybe, but I think, you know, you guys in American sport often talk about your sophomore slump. 
I think the fact that he's been able to almost maintain his ranking is, is progress for me. You know, once you come onto the radar of these top 100 players, I mean, everybody, your game is under forensic scrutiny. People are, are suddenly taking a lot more interest. They're picking your game apart. They're finding out about your strengths and weaknesses. So I think he's done well to, to pretty much maintain the ranking. And I think he's going to come, come back better and stronger next year. He'll be a lot more comfortable. He's played a lot of tennis, Craig. And he did that to find out which events he likes, which ones don't suit him so much. And I think he will schedule um, a lot smarter next season. You think that he's scheduled a little bit haphazardly? Uh, I just think he's he scheduled for volume, to get a feel, play as much matches as possible. And that's not the way to do it these days. Well, I think it's not a bad idea early on in your career when you're chasing points. But also, it's almost like laying the groundwork to your future. Let me have a look at all these events that are on the tour. And let me see where the feel-good factor might be how, what surface actually works for me, what conditions work for me. And then when I'm a better player and I can pick and choose, then I'll fine-tune my schedule. Uh, and I like what he and uh, coach uh, Marty Larendau ended up doing. And just your, your last observation from the Joker. Um, what he's been able to achieve in this era of tennis is uh, simply astounding. He's having to compete with two of the greatest players ever to play the sport. And I tell you what, this guy's not done yet, man. I can honestly say, Craig, uh, it's only happened perhaps once before, and it was with Novak, where guys started the season, and I think he's got a legitimate shot of winning the Grand Slam in the true sense of that meaning. The real Grand Slam. Winning all, all four in one season, not all the different Grand Slams they talk about now, the real Grand Slam, the one that Rod Lever has two of. Correct. He's got the Djokovic Slam. He's held all four at the same time. Remember, neither Federer or Nadal's been able to do that. And I'll tell you what, in 2019, he's got a good shot. I mean, and do you have any inside information about what was wrong with him, that elbow? Do we, does anyone know? I mean, did they open up his elbow to when he had that procedure done? I don't He's kept it real he slick. Is. He has. Kept it tight. Yeah, tighter than the tax man's purse, dude. That's how tight he's kept it. But, uh, you know, no one knows what happened. I mean, he, was, he, he hired Agassi and he hired uh, uh, the Czech coach. Stepanek. He hired, he hired Stepanek and he hired Andre. And he wasn't, he didn't even look like he was playing. Yeah. And then he had a procedure. He came back with his old team and it was lights out. Yeah. He's barely lost a match, man. I mean, he talks about the surgery. It must have been keyhole surgery. You don't see any evidence of major cuts going on there. So whatever that small procedure was, um, that's the only way he's ever described it. And that's the only insights I've ever got. But I think it's, it's no surprise that uh, once he got back with Marion, everybody gives a lot of credit to Vida, which I think you have to, but... Don't forget his fitness trainer, Gebhard Phil Gritsch, man. That guy's been with him. I think he's been instrumental in making him the, the yeah. super athlete that he is, He is, Craig. man. He's a pterodactyl, man. And it's guys that he's worked with, guys that know him inside out. And the mojo's back. I thought Wimbledon was going to come a little soon, to be honest. But I knew once he won Wimbledon, the rest of the field was going to be in trouble throughout uh, the course of the season. And by the way, he doesn't miss, man. That's the, that's the funny thing. He doesn't hit a whole host of winners, but he just wears you down. He suffocates you to death in matches. His, 
His ground stroke length, I've never seen anything like it. His consistency within a meter of the line, um, you can't attack it. Um, it's just something so unique. Uh, moving into our third set, this is a section where we typically discuss your career. You came on the scene and you had some big, big wins um, early on in singles. But, you know, I don't know that much about your career. I mean, you come from the South African tennis tradition. Yep. I grew up with Wayne Ferreira, of course, yeah. the last South African to make it here before Kevin did. Wayne Ferreira, uh, world number eight, I think, but he made a ton of money on this tour. And he was a dangerous, dangerous, world-class, giant killer. And oh, he certainly was. I think he was top 10 for about five or six years. Yeah. Um, in fact, when he did qualify for the season-ending championships in 95, in his group, he beat Sampras indoors and Kafelnikov indoors, lost to Becker 7-6 in the, in the third. He and stepped up against the great players. He, I remember him beating uh, Pete at, uh, in Miami. Great record against Pete. Yeah. In Pete's pomp. People yeah. forget that. I think uh, he's 7-6 down against Pete. But anyway, uh, Wayne was the main dude when I was growing up. But um, when you have in an environment where we had a, I'm sorry, where in South Africa are you from? I'm a Durban boy. Durban. Same places where Kevin Curran is, uh, Kevin Elliott, um, who played under the Zimbabwe flag, but was pretty much born and raised in SA, was also from Durban. And we had a, a lot of good players. Tennis was very popular back home. And and when I, uh, I only started to get uh, decent when I was about first year under 18, and I only traveled um, in the national squads when I was a little older. But, of course, playing against somebody like Wayne, suddenly when this one guy starts to break into the top 100 in the world, this is a guy you're practicing against. Wayne was the guy who gave us hope. If he can do it, and we're beating him in practice or we're playing him close in an event, why can't we do it? And, um, you know, so he was the flag bearer for us. And then, yeah, my ranking went up pretty quickly. I got inside the top 300 within about a year. Um, and I actually beat guys starting out like a Kafelnikov and a Pat Rafter in my early days, Tim Henman. We were all coming through as 18, 19-year-olds. You but had big wins. I mean, you were highly touted when you were coming into, into uh, pro tennis. I don't know highly touted. You're being very generous with your words there. But I was always vertically challenged, Craig. And that was always going to be my short form. My serve was, I was a serve and volleyer, but my serve was never good enough to be able to live with um, top 100 players on, on a regular basis. And then I got injured. Um, my, my knees uh, started to give me hassles. I had back-to-back -back operations. I ended up being out of the sport for about 14 months. And when I came back, uh, I still wanted to play singles. I was never intending to have a, a full-on doubles career. But it happened one year um, when I lost, I think it was second round qualification at the US Open. I ended up playing doubles and qualified in doubles and made quarters the very first time I played at the US Open. And basically in 10 days, I made more money than I'd made yeah. the whole year playing singles, and that was the no-brainer for me. And the other problem is, is is to crawl back through singles, challengers, quality. I mean, that's a tough slog when you can cover half the court yeah. and be in the main draws and, and be contending. Yeah. And and you talk a little bit about your doubles career. You you had you had a lot of yeah. You, know, you, you played with Uliet. Uh, no, JL De Jaeger. I played a lot with him um, early on, three or four years with JL, uh, David Adams, which is another South African guy. Then I played with Thomas Johansson, 
towards the end of my career. Of course, Australian Open champion. That was a lot of fun playing with a, a top, top singles player and a, and a top, top individual. Um, but yeah, you know, my game was suited for doubles. I was a seven volume in singles. And then the fact that I only had to cover half the court in doubles was really up my, uh, up my alley, excuse the pun. Davis Cup for South Africa. A lot of fun. Uh, I wish we had qualified for the world group. We came close a couple of times, but that's some of my fondest memories as well, playing, uh, playing some DC matches. But just to do something that I absolutely loved and get paid for it, you know, There's I've been so, like, I've been so like blessed, that. man. I, I wish I could have been better at what I'd done. I wish I could have perhaps won a major. I won a couple of uh, tournaments on tour. Semis of the US Open was the best I did. But um, simply to be a little bit more influential. I think, you know, when you win bigger titles, people get to know you more. And uh, I think it's easier to be more influential. That's, that's where I get my kicks. And I think broadcasting's given me that now. It's probably made me a bit more well-known than certainly in my playing days. And it's so fun to meet people and spread the... Spread the love I have for this game to them. Man, you play pro tennis, you, you're on the Davis Cup team, <laughs> and now you're in every, you got the best seat in the house for every tournament in the game. That's an incredible life. It is. And you're probably a scratch golfer, I'm going to guess. No, um, no. I'm working on it, though. Uh, I'm off about a, a six. You're a six. Yeah. So uh, love, you can, love you my can golf. get better. You can improve. <laughs> There's definitely room for improvement. Always. Now, you retired. 2005, end of 2005. You, and, and how does that happen? You're just not keeping up? Uh, no, interesting. Um, my second child's come along uh, at this stage. And yeah, the ranking had dropped a little bit, but crazy thing happened actually. Thomas Johansson said to me, if you want to play with me next year, I'm there for you. Uh, he was still a top singles player, so no problem getting into the tournaments. Thomas Johansson... Uh, won the Australian Open, man. This is a guy who's a top 10 player in the world. I, I don't know how high he got offhand, but, mm -hmm. you know, he was a... Grand he Slam had a, champion, right? He's a Grand Slam champion, and he had a moment where he was, you know, dominant. Yeah. Yeah. So I chose actually not to play. I had a coaching offer from um, Wesley Moody, another South African, and Mahesh. Uh, Bupati, who were playing uh, doubles together, so I had a singles gig with a doubles guy as well. And I liked the um, I liked the certainty of that and the fact that I wasn't going to be traveling as much. But as it happened, Thomas Johansson, he's warming up for a match in Rotterdam two months later and gets hit in the eye. Ends up being out of the game for about four or five months. And it was almost fate intervening, you know. Had he I chosen, scratched his cornea or something. That's right. Oh my god! And had I chosen to stay with them, I would have been out a of very, partner. Yeah, you'd been in flux, trying to feed your family. Exactly. So you know, I made the right decision there, and I coached for a year. Yeah. Um, and it was actually in that year where uh, a good friend of mine, Jason Goodall, who works for ESPN now, uh, we lived just a couple of driveways away from each other in Wimbledon when I was living in the UK. A chance meeting. And I said, what are you doing these days? He said, uh, I do world feed commentating. He says, what are you doing, Rob? I said, I'm doing some coaching. He said to me, would you ever be interested in commentating? And I said, sure, you know, um, because I understood how fickle the coaching setups could be. One day you're hot, next day you're not, right? That's hard too. Yep. That's hard. And um, he says, well, they're looking for a you know, commentator next year. So, you know what, if you're on site, come and try out. They might like you. And this was in the early days. And um, I was already there in a, in a coaching capacity. I, I did a couple of sets in Indian Wells and Miami and Rome. 
And then by Cincinnati that year, the, the guys in charge of ATP Media at the time said, hey, Rob, we like your voice. We like your work. Do you want to join us next year? And I said, sure. You know, again, it was a, it was a solid gig. It was guaranteed work. And I thought it's a, it's a great way to transition out of coaching because, uh, again, I understood the fickle nature of coaching. That's a great story, man. Thanks. Moving into our fourth set. Uh, we call this our 10-ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I'm just going to say some things. Okay. And you'll just say what you think. No problem. Favorite forehand? Federer. Favorite backhand? Djokovic. Favorite volley? Stefan Edberg. Favorite serve? Pete Sampras. Favorite tournament? Indian Wells. Favorite court? Santa Cora Wimbledon. Greatest win? Wow. Uh, it would have to be a, a doubles win. It would have to be my quarterfinal win over Norville and Neil Broad at the Piet US Norville. Open. Yep. Um, and only because it was a full house on Armstrong. They were waiting for Agassi to finish his match against Carol Kilchera from the day before. We had a full house. I think we came back from a set down. And I remember uh, thinking when I won that, uh, I'd made a big chunk of change and I was going to buy an apartment in London. My apartment in London's named US Open. <laughs> the, 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 the apartment the US Open built. Yes. Good for you, man. Um, worst loss? She was uh, the hardest loss. Round of 16, US Open, two match points against Jorge Stolli on my serve. Uh, we lost both the points, unbelievable points that we lost. No gagging, ended up losing that match. I couldn't sleep for weeks after that loss. Killed me. Can't sleep for weeks. Especially when you got match points. Blew two match points. Yeah. But they were great points. You didn't, you didn't gag them, you didn't I choke know, them. But uh, sleepless nights. Um, player scheduling. I think the best players always deserve the best schedule. They are box office. They should be prioritized. We are lucky that they make us so much money. Labor Cup. One of the greatest events I've been part of. The buzz around it is incredible. The players are so into it. I love the fact that it only takes place over a weekend. And I love the team environment. Davis Cup. Um, some of my favorite memories, but too many weeks in the calendar now for the big boys. On-court coaching? Not a fan. I think our sport is so unique. Off-court coaching? Of course. You're with your coach for every other hour of the day. Stick to the off-court coaching. Get out there and test my brain against yours. But, but, but what about, like, some, what do you think about, like, these guys yelling from, you know, the player looking at their box every two seconds, every point, coaches yelling at them, Coaches getting penalties. Where where does where do you stand on all that stuff? No, no coaching on court. Whatever it might be, if the guy's yelling from the stands, like what we saw with Serena and Patrick, um, you know, if you've got a good umpire, he's gonna he's gonna catch you out. Shut that down. Yes, please. Shut that down. Please. Moving into our fifth set, uh, we call this King of the Court. Okay. If you're the king, how would you do it? And my question to you is. What would you do, if anything, with regards to player development? 
some of these younger guys, I don't know what it is. They don't seem to have the same seriousness or gumption to get through. I think I know where you're coming from. I think there's a lot of money in the sport, so sometimes a player might, a youngster, uh, and anybody who's been on tour for a while might be happy making a million, a million and a half a year. And they don't have that motivation to sacrifice everything. And I think that's down to an individual. Um, there's a lot of players that wouldn't have been able to do what Novak Djokovic has done in this era. So I think the fact that there's a lot of money in the sport might make them a little softer. I don't know. The other thing is, um, if I could be be king of the court, I'd love to shake up the whole calendar, give it one more chance. I could clear everything out and struct structure it just how we'd want. Um, I think that would be probably the number one thing and align all the different divisions. I am a fan of uh, some events being combined. I think that sells the sport well. I am a fan of... Be specific. What do you think you'd do starting in January? Like, do you think that there's a clear place to pull the Asian tour and move it? Is there a, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd have to sit down with, with the calendar in front of me. I'd almost like the tour to end pretty soon after the U.S. Open, have the World Tour Finals as your last event post the U.S. Open. But it's not easy because Asia is a big market and we don't want to leave them out of the equation, Craig. So, yes, perhaps bring them off to Australia and and you're already in that part of the world on your way back to Europe. Stop and play some events in Asia. Those guys in Europe like the Rotterdams of the world might be a little unhappy, but I think, you know, the sacrifices would have to be made. There'd be a little bit of culling. It wouldn't be popular. But if you're thinking what might be best for the tour down the road, I think we have to snip it a little bit here and there. Last question. Um, what would you do about court speed, racket technology, string uh, technology? Easy answer for me that the racket technology and the string technology is so much in favor of the baseliner these days. Bigger sweet spots, more spin on the ball. You can do whatever you want with the ball these days. The one thing that we can control is the speed of the courts. Now they're even playing slow, so everything right now, the three major components are all in favor of the baseliner. You have to speed up the courts to give guys who have a different skill set, and I'm talking those who want to serve in volley, to give them a legitimate shot against these baseliners who have the string and racket technology to make life a lot easier for themselves. So I'd be a big proponent. And look, the hard courts, maybe in, in uh, the springtime in Indian Wells in Miami, you could have those a little slow leading into the clay court season. But post Wimbledon, US Open historically always used to be the fastest hard court. I think Toronto, Washington, Cincinnati, all those events, fast hard courts, really fast hard courts going into the US Open. Shorten up these points, different ways to skin the cat. Definitely. Give guys, as I said, who've got a different skill set, give them the ability to showcase that. Robbie Koenig, uh, pleasure was ours. That was a really good time. Uh, thanks for having us here in your booth. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, you are released. Thanks, bud. Cool, man. Thank you. That was fun. Huge thank you to Robbie Koenig and our friends at the ATP. I want to thank Caitlin and Dave from Racket Magazine for putting on an excellent party in London featuring our great friend Stretch Armstrong. And I want to thank Urgently for sponsoring the episode. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. 
I want to thank everyone for listening. Our email lines are open. Info at underreviewtennis.com. Let us know what you think and who you want to hear from. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe. Take a moment to rate and review us on the Apple Podcast. And tell your friends. Thank you for listening. And if you're going to beef up your kids with HGH, uh, just don't do that. And that goes for you too, Robbie. We'll be back soon with lots more tennis talk with the most interesting people in the sport. Until next time, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.